First, a quick reminder that we are in the middle of a membership drive for the month of July. Our memberships are on sale for 20% off, so if you've been on the fence about supporting the show, now is the time to sign up and lock in that discounted rate for the life of your membership. Sign up through our site or on Patreon. All the details are at bestoftheleft.com support, which you can find linked in the show notes. Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the dubious, ideologically-driven debate between overpopulation being a danger to the future of humanity and it being a dangerous myth obscuring the real issue of overconsumption. Sources today include Ideas, The Overpopulation Podcast, Who, What, Why, Acclimated, International Marxist Radio, the Rewilding Earth podcast, and The Wild Life, with an additional members-only clip from The Overpopulation podcast. China's one-child policy is estimated to have resulted in 400 million people not being born, although the country's population continued to climb and is more than 1.4 billion people today. The one-child policy was rescinded in 2016 as China was facing an aging and declining population. These harsh methods of population control shocked Western environmental organizations, to the point where the term overpopulation became something too freighted to talk about. And it fundamentally shifted the debate because a lot of people who were less concerned about population but very concerned about issues of justice and fairness and equity and the coercion of less powerful groups within societies saw exercises at fertility, at reducing fertility and at quote-unquote population control as basically forms of state coercion. Population growth has been largely removed from contemporary debates. It's almost a, a verboten topic. I think we, we created a Pandora box because we didn't discuss population growth in the right in the right way, right? And uh, and definitely, a, a, I did see a tone of racism in those years, and really the North pointing fingers at the South, which was growing faster. My name is Vanessa Perez-Sirera. I'm the global director for the Economic Center at World Resources Institute. And of course, the population that was coming, it, they, they, they were having the same aspirations as we we all, you know, if we have already, you know, had, a, had the opportunity to have essential needs plus, 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 why would any people in the, the southern world don't aspire for something similar, right? And so that created a little bit of a Pandora box when we talk about population. And I think now the, the debate and the narrative should be around how to ensure every citizen of the world to have basic needs and essential needs within the planetary boundaries. And that should be the conversation. And the conversation should be about overconsumption. That should be primarily the conversation. Bruce, if the dire warnings about overpopulation haven't actually led to our demise by now, why should we or anyone be concerned about population now? Well, there are two reasons. One is that the bill has finally come due on burning fossil fuels for nearly 200 years. And secondly, fossil fuels raised expectations among people in populous developing countries that they too can enjoy the same standard of living as those in wealthy countries. 
Developing nations with large populations with most people living primarily on the land produce very low carbon emissions. But as countries industrialize and urbanize, their reliance on fossil fuels grows. And our dependence on fossil fuels has a multiplying impact when more and more people are added to the planet. Overall, the average person on the Earth produces four tons of carbon per year. Yet the size of someone's carbon footprint varies depending on their standard of living and where they live. Africa has 17% of the world's population and 1.4 billion people, yet produces as a continent only 3.8% of the world's global emissions. A person living in Africa will, on average, produce carbon emissions of one metric ton per annum. How does that compare to more developed countries like Canada? An average Canadian produces about 15 times more than that, more than 15 tons of carbon, the same as an average American. And a wealthy person like Bill Gates, who flies around the world on private jets, he produces almost 7,500 tons of carbon every year. So the disparity in lifestyles between countries, on the one hand like the U.S. and Canada, and those in the developing world on the other, are largely due to our use of fossil fuels. And people in developing nations would obviously like to enjoy the benefits accrued by the use of fossil fuels as well. They want the lifestyles and the opportunities that we take for granted in our societies. And right now, the only real route for them to get there is to continue mobilizing, capturing and mobilizing and using a lot of fossil fuel energy. We don't see a clear route for the leapfrogging of these economies and these large populations over fossil fuel energy to some new kinds of technologies that are driven by renewable power. Those aren't in place yet. And that's really the fundamental dilemma that we're facing as a species. Overall, 50% of carbon emissions come from just 10% of the wealthiest global population, while the poorest half are responsible for only 12% of emissions. Quite rightly, many in the developing world will say, it is you in the developed world who started this revolution in terms of the use of fossil fuels. You know, So the majority of greenhouse gas emissions, which are causing current climate change, are the result of the European Industrial Revolution, North American, etc. So the industrialized nations are, are the key cause of that, for sure. But the rest of the world is catching up. start of the fossil fuel revolution, let's say arbitrary date 1800, 90% of the population in any given agrarian society was working at producing food so that the other 10% could live in cities and have specialized occupations as whatever, writers, printers, soldiers, lawyers, whatever you needed. So again, 90% of the people working the land, living rurally, growing food, keeping domesticated animals, and so on. So what happens, we use fossil fuels for 
agriculture every phase of the way. We've developed tractors and combines and all sorts of agricultural machinery that enable a few people to do as much work as it formerly took lots of people. So today in the United States, typical industrial nation, only one or two percent of the population has to work at farming in order to provide enough food for everybody else. So that's an enormous difference. What happened to those other 89% of the population? They didn't just go away. What happened was over time, they moved to cities. The biggest demographic shift of the last few decades has been urbanization, people moving from the countryside to cities. So people moved to cities and what did they do there? Well, they got jobs. This was a way of organizing people's work that virtually didn't exist before. I mean, you can find examples in the literature of people getting paid to do this and that, but it was always a very small minority of the population that had paid employment. But today we take it for granted that everybody has to have a job, you know, or a profession. And so what are some of those professions? There are thousands of professions and and jobs available, and a lot of them have to do with manufacturing or marketing or sales. Again, this way of organizing the economy around fossil fuels and around flows of money from fossil fuels is very recent. It's so easy to take it for granted and assume that people have always sort of lived this way. Yeah, things have changed, but no, it's a complete game changer. The introduction of fossil fuels altered the way we think about society and the way it works and the economy. Nobody talked about the economy in the year 1800. It wasn't a concept except for very, very few people who were just beginning to develop the ideas that would ultimately become the the discipline of economics. For everybody else, it was just daily life of growing food and going to the market once in a while, and that was it. But now the economy is this thing that we all talk about, that we measure using GDP, gross domestic product, and it's all calculated and measured on a daily and annual basis, and it's all based on the assumption of growth. We assume that the economy can always grow because it always has all Well, since when? Since the Industrial Revolution, since we started using fossil fuels. So again, economic growth is another artifact of fossil fuels. It's changed the way we live, the way we think, our assumptions. And we tend to think it's all because human beings just got really smart a couple of hundred years ago and started inventing stuff. But all of those inventions were just ways of using energy, ways of leveraging energy. And that energy suddenly was much more abundant because we had fossil fuels rather than just firewood and draft animals. Right. That population and consumption explosion of the last 200 years is on the back of that fossil fuel explosion. And as you've gone deeply into looking at how we have to transition to renewable energies because that these are non-renewable resources that took hundreds of millions of years to form the coal, oil, and natural gas. And we're using the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, the oil under natural pressure going to tar sands and deep sea and, and fracking and things that are much more expensive over time. So in a book that you co-authored called Our Renewable Future, you've outlined 
outlined the challenges and opportunities of transitioning to renewable energy. You've mentioned that we should be building out wind and solar now and using these depleting fossil fuels that we'll need for that build out while we still have affordable access to them. Could you summarize that huge study that you've done? (laughs) Some of the challenges we'll face in a transition to renewable energy? Sure. Yeah, this was a wonderful project. I was able to work with David Fridley, who's on the energy analysis team at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. I'm just a writer. I write about technical stuff, but I don't have a lot of technical background in in terms of training, engineering, physics, and so on. David does. That's his work and that's his profession. So we spent a year together. You know, he did the technical analysis and I wrote the thing up. And by the way, the book, Our Renewable Future, is all online. You can access it for free. Just go to ourrenewablefuture.org. And so what did we look at? We looked at what the transition from a fossil-fueled energy regime to an all-renewable energy regime would look like. What would be the difficulties? How could they be overcome? And so on. In short, what we found was that all of the challenges can be dealt with, can be overcome in essence at a laboratory scale. For example, airliners, that's a huge problem for transitioning to renewable energy. Why? Because the power density of jet fuel is so much greater than the power density, pound for pound, kilogram for kilogram, of batteries. So we take for granted an airliner with 300 people being able to fly for 15 hours and go from Asia to the Americas. But you can't do that with batteries. It's just physically not possible. So... How do you solve that problem? Well, there are various ways. You could use renewable electricity to electrolyze water, produce hydrogen. Hydrogen is very hard to store because its volume density is so low. So you could create synthetic jet fuel using hydrogen and combine it with carbon from the atmosphere, plenty of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere as a result of all the carbon emissions we've done burning fossil fuels. So, hey, why not just capture some of that CO2, which we can do that. There are machines that will do that. Then combine it cleverly with the hydrogen from water and produce synthetic jet fuel. Okay, it's technically possible. You can do it in the laboratory, but that's going to be very expensive fuel as compared to current kerosene prices. Kerosene is what we use as jet fuel. And there are other instances like that that we encountered. Another one is making cement. Now, cement is the key ingredient of concrete, and concrete is literally the foundation of modern industrial civilization, whether you're talking buildings or highways. Even wind turbines have to be anchored in concrete. So we need a lot of concrete. We use a lot of concrete in the billions of tons per year. So cement, how is cement made? Well, it's made in giant kilns that operate at 1500 degrees Celsius, 24-7, 365 days a year. And uh, they burn fuels, often natural gas, in order to produce that high temperature. Well, can you produce temperatures that high using electricity? Yes. Theoretically, you could also, once again, produce synthetic fuels using electricity and do the same process. But once again, it would be very expensive. So all these problems can be solved at laboratory scale, but doing this stuff at the global industrial scale that we're operating at right now, it's going to be expensive and difficult. It's going to take time to transition these industries.
United Nations Population Division has a really good track record at predicting uh, population growth. They've been doing it since the 1950s, and they've been doing it well. And they predicted by, that by around now, we would be at 7.5 billion people or so, and we are at about 7.5 billion people or so. And they predict that by the end of this century, we will have gone past 11 billion. So there's every reason to believe that since the United Nations Population Division got it right in the past, that they're going to get it right in the future as well. That's a reasonable assumption. However, the, that assumption is flawed. There is another group of demographers who say that the United Nations assumptions are wrong, that the population is not going to get to 11 billion. It's only going to get to 9 billion sometime around the middle of the century. And then it's going to start going down and going down quite quickly. Uh, Daryl Bricker, my co-author, um, and I believe that these dissident demographers are right, that the evidence on the ground suggests that uh, the UN assumptions are uh, out of date uh, and, that they, and that they should change those assumptions. And if they do, the UN, too, will start to adjust its numbers to around 9 billion rather than 11 billion. What are some of those assumptions that are fundamentally wrong? One, certainly, and, and you talk a lot about this, is the shifting of the population from rural to urban. That, that That's really one of the key indicators here. It is absolutely the key indicator. And the United Nations fails to understand the pace of urbanization. We are now a mostly urban species. Uh, about 55% of, of humanity lives in cities. We've already seen this happening, of course, in the developing world, but it is happening at a tremendous clip in the developing world now as well. And when people move from countryside to cityside, four things happen. First off, a kid stops being an economic asset, another you know, pair of hands to work in the fields, and becomes a liability, just another mouth to feed. The second thing that happens, and this is perhaps the most important of all, women, when they move from the countryside to the city, have access to information they didn't have before. They have education. They have schools. They have media. They have other women who are able to educate each other. As women become better educated, invariably, they begin to demand more autonomy over their lives. As they have obtained more autonomy over their lives, one of their first decisions is to have fewer children than their mother had. The second, the, the third influence is one of religion, which is more powerful in the countryside than it is in the city. As the power of religion weakens, the ability of the priest or the, whoever to tell you that you must get married and come down to have many kids weakens. And finally, the power of the clan weakens. You have fewer aunties uh, telling you that it's time for you to, you know, to get married and sit down and have kids. And your, your biggest influence is your co-workers and your friends who rarely are urging you to have another baby. So economic, the education of women, the declining power of religion, the declining power of the clan, these all conspire to push down fertility rates once people move from the countryside to the city. There is this assumption that has been prevailing for a long time that somehow population decline and, and drops in fertility rates and drops in population <clears throat> replacement was somehow a negative social indicator. That's not necessarily true. No, absolutely not. Uh, a declining birth rate is everywhere in the world uh, correlative with uh, the increasing education and empowerment of women. Um, and again, the declining fertility rates that we're seeing in the developing world go along with women in the developing world having more control over their lives uh, than they had in the past. Um, so yes, uh, as women obtain better education and more autonomy, more ability to decide for themselves what they want to do with their lives, uh, fertility rates drop. And in that sense, uh, population decline is entirely a good thing. 
To what extent are economics and globalization a, a significant part of what we're seeing here? The globalization is helping to improve living standards in the developing world. Uh, and as living standards improve, education improves, uh, fertility rates go down. So, I mean, we all know that the developed world has been below replacement rate for many years. And we have about you know two dozen countries around the world that are losing population every year right now because they don't have the 2.1 uh, fertility rate that's required to keep a, a population stable. So it's no surprise that Japan, for example, lost almost 450,000 people last year, that populations are uh, declining in Eastern Europe and other parts of, you know, the, of the developed nations in Eastern Asia as well. But China is going to start losing population in the next decade. It's the world's most populous country. It's below for, uh, replacement rate. It will start losing population in the next decade. India has reached replacement rate. You can no longer look to India as this great source of population growth because they are now at 2.1. Brazil, the world's fifth largest country, they're at 1.8. They are well below replacement rate. Um, and they are going to start losing population as well. So as you look around the world, well, where are the big centers of population growth? Where are the big places where lots and lots of babies are going to be born? Apart from sub-Saharan Africa, we are running out of places to produce those babies. And as the population, the aging population, lives longer and the replacement rate continues to drop, talk about the economic implications of that. They are challenging. <clears throat> so yes, our thesis would be even more evident if uh, longevity weren't increasing uh, in the very same places where fertility rates are dropping, uh, but they are. So um, people are living longer in, everywhere in the world, including in the developing world. Uh, but there are two consequences to that. Uh, first of all, you have when you have fewer young people every year than you had the year before, uh, which is the inevitable result of below uh, replacement fertility rates, then you have fewer young people who are able to pay the taxes needed to sustain all the old people who require health care and pensions. The other impact is on consumption. Economies are driven by consumption. That is the single most important factor in economic growth. Consumption is driven by young people, people who have graduated from school and are buying the first house or the first car, having their first kid, the first, you know, the stroller that's needed for the kid, the, uh, the, you know, the minivan that replaces the car for the kid. All of these things that the 20 somethings and 30 somethings and 40 somethings and even 50 somethings acquire over the course of the decade, that drives economic growth. But when there are fewer of those people around, then there are fewer people to drive to consume people to drive growth, and it makes it harder for society to continue to finance the things that it needs to finance to sustain the lifestyle that people are accustomed to. As we look at, at population historically, is this something that is cyclical, or is this something that is, that is more systemic right now? Absolutely systemic. So if you look at uh, 1800, uh, an American woman, uh, around eight, a white woman, and unfortunately there's no data for uh, Native Americans or African Americans, but a white woman in 1800 would have seven babies. A white woman in 1900 would have four. So the United States halved its fertility rate in over the course of the 19th century. And then it went down and down and down. And then the blip of the baby boom for a couple of decades made it look as though things were changing. But there was just a blip. And then it went back to going down and down and down again. And it's, in fact, the latest data shows that the fertility rate in the United States is at the lowest level it has ever been. Um, it took the United States 
um, you know, more than a century and a half to get its fertility rate down below replacement rate. Uh, but this is happening in a generation in uh, m- m- most parts of the developing world. So it only goes in one direction, and it's accelerating. We're running a special discount on memberships this month. Sign up now at bestoftheleft.com slash support to lock in that discount for as long as you keep your membership and enjoy ad-free versions of the show going forward. But until then... This topic of overpopulation, the idea that there are just too many people and the population growth is running out of control, it's actually been a consistent part of sort of mainstream discourse to some extent or another for a, a few decades now. It shows up in pop culture sometimes. It came back into pop culture spotlight a couple of years ago, actually, in a very big way with Avengers Infinity War, uh, because the villain in that, Thanos, you know, famously proclaimed his desire to end suffering by uh, just killing half of all life in the universe at random. Pretty, isn't it? Perfectly balanced. This whole thing should be. In his backstory, the idea is that he proposed this idea to, I guess, his government or whatever on his planet, and they rejected it. He got exiled for it. And so his response was to just conquer other planets and take care of all that depopulation on his own. Titan was like most planets. Too many mouths, not enough to go around. And when we faced extinction, I offered a solution. Genocide. But random, dispassionate, fair to rich and poor alike. They called me a madman. And what I predicted came to pass. What he means here is that his planet eventually experienced insurmountable tragedy, presumably as a result of the overpopulation he anticipated. So in order to prevent that from happening elsewhere, at least according to his argument, uh, he decides to expedite his plans to uh, depopulate the rest of the universe. And in Infinity War, he goes ahead and uh, takes care of this. He collects the Infinity Stones, does what he needs to do, snapped his fingers, half of all life is extinguished. And um, that's that. Credits roll. And so, obviously, uh, it's got people talking afterward. Some people a little bit more seriously. Some people sort of half-joking, whatever. But, you know, over the next few months, a a debate played out where people would say, is there merit to this idea that resource scarcity and population are are sort of intention? Or is this just sort of like a dangerous um, path to go down in in terms of environmental politics? Uh, you know, people online joked that Thanos did nothing wrong, all that sort of stuff. And so a, a term that came up often in these conversations was Malthusian, which is a reference to the ideas on population growth set forth by uh, Thomas Malthus back in the late 18th century. Uh, and Thanos was apparently a Malthusian, but let's listen to him describe his philosophy in a little bit more detail um, and see how he thinks things actually work. No, we were happy on my home planet. Going to bed hungry, scrounging for scraps. Your planet was on the brink of collapse. I'm the one who stopped that. Do you know what's happened since then? The children born have known nothing but full bellies and clear skies. It's a paradise. Because you murdered half the planet. A small price to pay for salvation. You're insane. Little one, it's a simple calculus. 
This universe is finite, its resources finite. If life is left unchecked, life will cease to exist. It needs correction. You don't know that! I'm the only one who knows that. At least I'm the only one with the will to act on it. So in this conversation, he spells out uh, the formula as he sees it. Finite resources means finite people. So if there are too many people around, there won't be enough for everyone. It's, it's pure math. There's no way around it. And this kind of you know, very straightforward mathematic formation of resources versus population is often associated with Malthus. I will admit, I have referred to these kinds of ideas as Malthusian in my own writing before. It's a very easy shorthand. But it actually isn't exactly what Malthus was talking about. And I think looking at what he and his successors specifically proposed makes it easier to understand the problems with the overpopulation debate as it exists today and as it has existed for the past two centuries. Malthus was a reverend, uh, a clergyman, a man of the church, uh, and he was uh, alive in quite a period of revolution and counter-revolution, we could say, at the end of the uh, 18th and early 19th century. And, and I think this period really had an influence on himself and obviously other thinkers and writers at the time. You had the French Revolution uh, towards the end of the 18th century and, and other movements that were inspired by it. You had the rise of the uh, working class in, in countries like Britain. Uh, I know in, in previous episodes you discussed this with, with Josh Holroyd, for example, about the, the Peterloo massacre, the, uh, the Chartist movement that was influential on Marx and Engels as well. And basically all of this uh, was playing out, this class struggle. And, and actually Marx and Engels made an interesting point that, that the class struggle plays out economically and politically, but it also plays out theoretically. And in this sense, the uh, movements that were taking place, they had the, their own representatives theoretically and the, their own thinkers. And on the conservative side, on the side of reaction, you had people like Malthus and, uh, and others, Edmund Burke as well, famous uh, kind of theoretician of conservatism, if you like. And Malthus and Burke and people, they were responding to uh, kind of romantic uh, thinkers, utopian thinkers that were around at the time, people who were inspired by the events of the French Revolution. And they were putting forward the idea that, you know, that, that these revolutionary movements showed the potential to break free of, of feudalism and, uh, and conservatism and to actually pave the way for kind of utopian future uh, societies where there would be no limits to, to human progress. And basically, it was this idea, this idea of unlimited progress in society that Malthus was really trying to polemicize against with his writings. His, his, his famous essay, uh, the full title of which was actually, got it here, if I can, can uh, get it all in, it's a bit of a mouthful, an essay on the principle of population as it affects the future improvement of society with remarks on the speculations of Mr. Godwin, Mr. Concorde, and other writers. Bit of an so, overpopulated title, really. Oh, yeah, exactly. It's a bit of a mouthful, as I said. But the people he referenced there at the end, God, uh, Godwin, Concordia, uh, these were uh, these romantic uh, and utopian thinkers that I was talking about putting forward this idea of, of human progress. And this was a polemic against that. It was, it was a defense of the status quo, effectively, 
Uh, and he wrote it in 1798, which is not coincidentally uh, just a, a few years after the, the French Revolution. And, uh, and also at a time when you had the United Irishmen in, uh, in the British Isles, uh, who were uh, also influenced by uh, these, these events. And this is where he basically first outlined um, his uh, argument about overpopulation, which, as you said in, in your introduction, he blamed for all of society's ills. And he said it was overpopulation, ultimately, that would limit the development of society and, and mean that this idea of progress wasn't really uh, possible. And I, I can go into that more if, if you'd like. Yeah, please, because the way that he articulates his arguments, and you explain this in your article, is you have a mathematical formula for the growth of human populations um, and another one for the development of resources. So what he argued is that without any barriers, humans multiply at a geometric rate, 1, 2, 4, 8, 16. But the ability of humans to produce food um, only increases arithmetically, so 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. The inevitable outcome of which, he argues, is that you have more people than can be supported with the amount of food the population can produce. And he claimed to base this argument in empirical evidence. And Marx and Engels, and you detail this in some, in some length in your article, basically smash this argument all to pieces. Um, so if you like, you can go a bit more into what Malthus actually argued specifically. But I also wanted you to talk a little bit about how Marx and Engels dealt with these arguments in their day before we go on to dealing with the neo-Malthusianisms and how Marxists would respond to them in 2023. Yeah, I think uh, you've outlined uh, in, in, in summary what Malthus's argument was. And uh, there was, there's not that much more to it, to be honest. Um, it really all uh kind of stands or falls on the uh the the validity the validity of these these two assertions these two uh you know progressions as as you've outlined the 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 geometric or exponential one of of human population growth if it's left uh you know un, unrestrained or the growth of of the economy of food of production uh which for some reason Malthus said could only uh increase at this kind of linear gradual uh rate and um and basically the the argument uh, that Malthus is putting forwards is that we as humans are simply animals you know we are just uh breeding like bunny rabbits if you like uh if we if we're not uh, constrained in any way and actually Malthus didn't just make these assertions and then just leave it at that he drew very reactionary political conclusions from this you know he was actually very influential in his day in arguing for policies that would try and put a limit on human populations and and that did blame the poor for being poor basically and and make the poor suffer for their own poverty if you like the poverty that was actually in fact imposed upon them by capitalism. So sorry to interrupt, but if you read uh, literature from Victorian England, you see these ideas presented and satirized. I can't help but thinking of Charles Dickens, who in a Christmas Carol has Ebenezer Scrooge saying to the charity workers, 
when they say that poor people would rather die than go to the workhouses, which were these brutal institutions where the impoverished were forced to carry out essentially slave labour under terrible conditions. And Scrooge, the mean, horrible capitalist, obviously expressing these Arthusian ideas, says, let them die and make themselves useful by reducing the surplus population. And, That's right. That's right. And, and, and it's interesting to me how these ideas are so bound up in the kind of psychological character of British capitalism and British imperialism realism in particular and it's not even um, just at the time that um Malthus was writing, even prior to that, in the very, very, very early stages. I think about Jonathan Swift satirizing the attitude to um, the suffering of Irish people in a modest proposal, where he says, well, maybe we should just let them all eat their children. And there were some people in the in British high society who assumed he was being serious because this was close to their to their attitude. And then, of course, um, the callous response to the potato famine in Ireland, uh, the justification for the Bengal famine and the various famines that broke out in um, in the Indian Raj, um, the justification was basically this is just natural. Um, That's right. These these people are just um, are, are lazy. They deserve to be poor. Their starvation is the just punishment for their um, for their heathen idleness. Uh, these ideas are really deeply enmeshed with the psychology of the British ruling class at this time. We are in the middle of a long overdue membership drive. It's one of those things that doesn't feel like it should be necessary, but is. I mean, people are free to sign up for a membership all year round, but a lot of people, maybe people like you, no judgment at all, often wait for a special occasion when someone like me finally says, no, seriously, we really actually need new members and we need them right now. So here I go. We're a small team working on a small budget, so every new member really does make a difference to us. Members have been supporting the show and keeping us going since 2010, but there are always ebbs and flows. Financial situations change, political proclivities change, and so some of those who have supported us in the past no longer do. So every once in a while, we need to really make a point of asking for new members because that is literally how we pay for food, housing, medical insurance, and all the rest. Yes, there are ads in the show, but they don't pay all the bills. And since it's been too long since our last membership drive, we really actually do need new members and we need them now. To sweeten the deal, membership is on discount for 20% off this month, so you can grab that and lock in that price for as long as you keep your membership. You'll get bonus clips and chapter markers in every episode. There will be bonus episodes where the team get together to basically try to make each other laugh while also discussing really important issues, and there will be an ad-free experience all the way around. Just head to bestoftheleft.com support for details, and that link is in the show notes. Thanks in advance for your support. It's clear even in the language that we use, we call much of the non-human world resources. And uh, our ultimate goal is, has been and is to dominate the planet with our species. The second piece of how humane education ties into um, population is that population growth actually depends on the subjugation of personal and reproductive autonomy. Having children is a you know pop in the population arena um, it's seen as a contentious issue. 
Um, but if you kind of break it down, you look at having children when done under the right circumstances in a just and sustainable way, as Carter will speak to in a bit, it can be and is for many a beautiful, purposeful, and joyous thing. But one cannot assume that is the case for everyone. And once you start kind of peeling back the layers of what's actually going on, you see that population growth is actually happening on the backs of those with the least personal and reproductive autonomy. Um, most of it is happening in countries with oppressive cultural practices, such as low status of women, gender-based violence, um, forced child marriage, etc. And it leads to hundreds of millions of people, especially women, into situations of forced pregnancy, unwanted births, etc. So really, when you... Um, Dissected, reproduction has actually become uh, exploited as a tool to keep a lot of power structures alive, such that young women and um, young girls and women in general are pressured and often coerced into having children and large families in order to keep the supply of religious followers, workers, taxpayers, soldiers, etc., um, to keep going. So, you know, from a human education perspective, human population growth is an issue that impacts people, animals, and the rest of the planet uh, because it relies on unjust practices, but also because then the growth itself um, further perpetuates a lot of inequities and unjust practices. And, you know, that's kind of the interconnection between human people, uh, sorry, people, animals, and the planet. I mean, if we wanted to teach children um, how they should treat other beings, the first thing we have to explain to them is, well, who should we be as a people? Uh, and to date, that question is largely getting answered uh, in the form of, well, we should be people that fill a shopping mall. Because gross domestic product is God, um, and we should maintain high levels of consumption, low levels of labor cost, um, and a growing tax base so that we are this big, powerful entity. And that's the antithesis of, of being a free people. Um, if you wanted to be a free people, you would envision yourself not in a shopping mall, but in a town hall. You would have a role in deciding the governance under which you lived. That would mean participating in the system. That would mean smaller groups of people who actually could have a voice. Your relationship to other people in the town hall um, would be one of empathizing with them. Uh, you, you wouldn't be having a commercial relationship where you relied on incentives backed by state coercion. You would be engaged in negotiations with them, an empathetic political relationship. Um, and empathetic people, smaller populations living in participatory democracies, the freedom, the opposite of a shopping mall mentality, that is completely consistent with rewilding, completely consistent with nature. What's the point of teaching children how they should be empathetic towards other creatures if those creatures don't exist, if we haven't restored our ecology and rewilded the earth? And the relationship that the children would have to other species is one of uh, empathy and pro-social behavior. Uh, so, to Nanda's point, it's not just about 
rewilding for nature as a value. It's being free, being a, a free people. There's no such thing as a freedom to do whatever you want to do. That's nonsense. There's no concept like that. Freedom is freedom from other people. And we know that's what nature is. And it's also freedom to do. And the way we know what we're allowed to do is by participating in a town hall. That's how we come up with the rules. So I see human education as teaching children. This is who we should be. Uh, and it's consistent with rewilding women's liberation, uh, empathy, and it's the antithesis of a shopping mall. Uh, and it's what our, I think, what our country's founders had hoped for, but had lost because of the hegemony of economics. Andita, can you uh, discuss your work on making the links between pronatalism and overpopulation and also define pronatalism for us? Um, yeah, I briefly touched upon um, these pressures that are placed on um, women, especially, to bear children and have large families as a means to, to other ends. But if you take more of a 30,000-foot view at pronatalism, um, it is uh, the social bias towards having biological children. And a good definition from uh, Laura Carroll's book, The Baby Matrix, is Pronatalism is an attitude or policy that is pro-birth, that encourages reproduction, that exalts the role of parenthood. It's the idea that parenthood and raising children should be the central focus of every person's adult life. And it's a strong social force, includes a collection of beliefs so embedded that they've become to be seen as true. And it's based on the premise that reproduction is not only normal, but also natural. Um, for example, it has been debunked uh, that uh, the biological bias, uh, the procreative drive that we often talk about to have children is not a universal drive. But the social bias is so strong that we are made to believe that our desire to procreate is natural, but also universal. So what happens when you mix in these cultural ideas about having children and that we must all uh, make that a part of our life's journey with the coercive set of power structures like religion, like corporations, like um, you know, political enterprises, uh, and as Carter said, economic pressures to grow the GDP, you get a very toxic mix of uh, pressures that are all pointing to one thing, that everybody must have children. And so, you know, as I briefly mentioned, they show up in the form of religious pressures, um, which are depicted as shame, guilt, fatalism. Um, you start to see, you know, an active restriction of contraceptives or a ban on family planning services. We're seeing a lot of economy-driven pressures showing up in um, industrialized countries like Canada, uh, US, Australia, etc., through baby bust alarmism, a view that our economy will suffer if we don't keep producing more people. You see political pressures showing up through child tax credits or lump sum baby bonuses. And, you know, some of them are camouflaged as family-friendly, sometimes even feminist-friendly. But again, when you dig a little deeper, you 
come to realize that it's that the these incentives don't exist to help people, individual citizens, children. They exist to promote reproduction. Malthusian thinking has led to violent population control efforts that unfairly target the poorest and most marginalized people in our societies, many of whom are the least responsible for environmental degradation to begin with. It diverts attention away from the actual causes of that degradation. Malthusian thinking also calls for greater restraints on women, even though it's been shown that expanding women's rights actually slows population growth. More on that in a minute. Fast forward to 1974 to a pair, Ehrlich and Holdren, and their IPAT equation. The two are what you would call Neo-Malthusians. They carried many of the same beliefs, but they also wanted to account for how differing lifestyles might also impact, well, impact. And they developed the following equation, I equals P times A times T, in which I is the impact of the environment, which is found by taking P, population, A, uh, a measure of affluence, because wealthier folks tend to have a higher impact, times rate of technology use, because technology can reduce environmental impacts. What they determined is that population is still the most important factor in understanding environmental impact, but those impacts may be lessened by affluence and technology. In other words, poor and developing countries were still to blame. Reality is that development has a widely varying impact on the environment. Initially, the impact is greater as the rate of development is at its highest, but once a country reaches a certain level of wealth, that impact begins to decrease as the country develops regulations, better systems, infrastructure. How much impact is too much? The IPAT can be calculated in different ways to see how much of an impact a certain number of people at a certain standard of living will have on the environment. Carrying capacity is a population that can be sustained in an area over time. In nature, that's super dependent on ecosystem factors, but our technology and lifestyle have had a major impact on any genuine estimations of human carrying capacity. It's simply too variable. One way of considering a locality's capacity might be by looking at a person or a group's ecological footprint. It's something that can be calculated in order to estimate how much of the Earth's surface would be required to support a population based on the number of resources needed to sustain that particular lifestyle. If you check the episode notes on this, or even the uh, blog post that's connected, there is a link for a website where you can calculate your own ecological footprint. Then there are the cornucopian population theorists who see the population itself as a resource and see innovation as the key. Why? Well, when resources are scarce, people are going to innovate. At least that's the idea. The more people there are, the more minds are coming up with new ideas to solve the issues, right? For an example, one could look to the Green Revolution. Society developed a plethora of agricultural innovations that led to greater yields, therefore more food availability for a growing population. 
Granted, there was and continued to be great environmental and social cost. The thing is, the population as a resource view ignores some important geographical aspects of population scarcity. Scale. The scale of food production is not taken into account, nor is its impacts on local communities in comparison to those of faraway places. Just because yields are higher or more food is produced doesn't mean that food is being distributed evenly. Hunger and starvation might still be widespread in a locality, even if they're producing enough food. The world produces 1.5 times the amount of food needed to feed the entire world, yet an estimated 690 million go to bed hungry every night. Population growth rates have been declining since the 1960s, moving towards zero population growth, in which there's equal numbers of births and deaths, and therefore no net increase in population. What is causing the decline? The Demographic Transition Model, or DTM, is a model of population change that suggests that the population growth and decline is based on the stage of development and type of economic activities. Stage 1, you have a high death rate, high birth rate, and low or no population growth. In Stage 2, your death rate falls, but birth rate stays high, so you have high population growth. Stage 3, death rate's low, birth rate starts to fall. Population growth is still high, but it's slowing down. In stage four, the last stage, your death rate is low, your birth rate is low, so you have low or no population growth. The DTM was based on European patterns of population growth and development from 1800 until the present, but the model has been applied around the world. If we use this model, most countries in the world have actually made it to the final stages of DTM, while others are currently in the midst. Currently developed countries, on average, have taken roughly 80 years to make it through the stages of DTM, while others are catching up. In fact, many countries have done so remarkably quickly. Bangladesh, for example, was in stage 1 during the late 60s, early 70s, but it made it to stage 4 by 2015. Iran went through all four stages in 10 years. In part, this is because as more countries make their way through DTM, the more there are to assist others, either directly or indirectly, and expediting their DTM journey, whether that's available technology, resources, what have you. No matter how you look at it, increasing the standard of living in other countries is a win-win-win for the world. In other words, bettering the life of someone on the opposite side of the globe is personally beneficial to you. This is why anti-foreign aid arguments really hold no ground whatsoever. Whether or not your motivation is altruistic and that you want everyone to live a better life, or morally questionable, like you don't want refugees coming into your neck of the woods for whatever reason, helping others is the greatest solution to a better world. World poverty levels are lower than ever, and our growth rate is leveling out. That's a good thing. What the DTM does not account for is non-economic factors that might affect population growth. Around the world, women's rights, education, and literacy rates are correlated with low fertility rates. There's some question about whether the low fertility rates lead to higher education and literacy, or if it's the other way around. However, lower fertility rates are also associated with women's empowerment, access to health care, and ability to make reproductive decisions on their own. In other words, a higher standard of living is also connected to a decline in birth rate and a leveling out of population growth. 
Human 12 billion may never, ever be born at all. That's the reality of population growth. A new study projects the world population, which now stands at 7.8 billion, to peak in 2064 at 9.7 billion and then fall to 8.8 billion by 2100. In fact, many countries will see their populations reduced by as much as half by 2100. That's not because of mass deaths or anything like that. It's simply as a result of a, a slowing in uh, the birth rate and therefore the replacement rate of the population. Global overpopulation is largely a myth. It's xenophobic, racist, classist, scare tactics. Think about it. When you hear about overpopulation concerns, you hear reference to Africa as a whole, India, and China. In other words, places where impoverished people of color live. Can localities become overpopulated? Absolutely. Are there problems that come with that? Well, not so much as the cause. Problems associated with overpopulation are a result of systems failure to take care of its people through the distribution of resources. Poverty and hunger are more so the result of greed than an increase in people. And it doesn't have to be that way. Those problems are man-made. They can be solved by humans. As we develop, our education levels will increase. Our standards of living will increase. Our birth rates will drop. The fear that's been instilled in us, a vision of a future that will never come to pass. Or at least one that we can avoid now, now that we know how to curve it. We also have to reconcile that just because our staggeringly large population won't lead to doom doesn't mean we don't and won't have consequences to mitigate. A changing climate, for example. We've just heard clips today starting with ideas discussing the problem of developing countries looking to match the level of consumption that we have. The Overpopulation podcast explained the connection between the population and the Industrial Revolution. Who, What, Why re-examined population growth predictions. Acclimated discussed Marvel normalizing eco-terrorism via the Avengers movie. International Marxist Radio discussed the debunked theories put forward by Thomas Malthus. The Rewilding podcast looked at a few of the systems that contribute to the social norm of population growth, and the Wildlife looked at some of the darker sides of population control efforts. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard a bonus clip from the Overpopulation podcast, which unsurprisingly takes the stance that overpopulation isn't a myth, and explained that some of those who say it is are doing so for ideological reasons. If you ask yourself, why is the Cato Institute or the Foundation for Economic Education promoting the idea that population growth is great? Well, these are organizations whose central activities is to try to limit government regulation of the marketplace. Limited government, low taxation, personal freedom, individual responsibility. These are the mantras. So why would an organization like that say that overpopulation is a myth? Well, it's because of their relationship to government and governance. They oppose government action in the marketplace on libertarian principles. Now, to wrap up, I want to give my thoughts on the connection between population and resource consumption and to explain the title of the episode. First, 
what I think is obviously true is that if people weren't consuming beyond the carrying capacity of the planet, then we wouldn't be concerned about overpopulation. So no matter where you come down on the overpopulation debate, myth or no myth, we should all agree that at best, overpopulation is just a stand-in for overconsumption. Because population isn't a problem on its own. Only when it's coupled with excessive consumption does it become a problem. The second point is that there's a reasonably good chance that the demographers predicting a slowdown and maybe even stop in population growth could be right. There's lots of reasons to believe that people, given an education and urban living and a choice, will decide to have dramatically fewer children. So the population problem might largely solve itself. Not that I'm suggesting it isn't good to help it along. I mean, educating women, providing family planning resources, and abolishing patriarchal systems are good in their own right and help curb population growth, so we should keep up on all those things. But even if we did nothing, those trends would probably continue anyway. And also, if the population were to stop growing today, that itself wouldn't solve the real issue of overconsumption. So, as we learned today, part of the foundational premise that Thomas Malthus was working from is that humans procreate geometrically, like mindless animals. We just will have as many kids as resources allow. But we also know that to not be true. It turns out, humans seem to actually use their brains to make decisions about things like having kids, as evidenced by the lower birth rates in urban and less oppressive places. So then, the question that I think is at the heart of this debate is this. Do humans consume unthinkingly the way Malthus thought we procreated, or are humans capable of consuming thoughtfully and decide to consume less the way we actually decide to have fewer children. This is what I meant in the title of the show about the debate being more philosophical than empirical. I think the debate comes down to how you answer that question. So setting all of those who want to control women and perpetuate oppressive systems through pronatalism aside, if you think that humans will always consume unthinkingly, then population growth is a reasonable stand-in for expected consumption, and you will support the idea that overpopulation is a problem. But if you think that humans can be thoughtful enough about their consumption to reduce it to the point of sustainability, then population is a poor stand-in for the real problem, and you'll argue that overpopulation is a myth. The complicating factor is that Although people have shown themselves to be able to make the decision to have fewer children, they didn't do that out of concern for overpopulation. It was a reaction to the incentive structures that make up their personal lived reality, the most profound of which that was described today is that new children are an asset on a farm, but a burden in an urban setting. So we should expect similar dynamics to play out in people's decisions about consumption. People will not stop over-consuming unless it is in their own self-interest to do so, and that requires policy, or the overthrow of capitalism that demands infinite growth, but until that happens, we need to start with policy. And since that's such a big idea, we figured we'd make an episode to explore it. So 
assuming all goes well with that project, be on the lookout for that topic in the upcoming weeks. That is going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. I would love to hear your thoughts or questions about this or anything else. You can leave a voicemail or send us a text to 202-999-3991 or simply email me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWendy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who already support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support. If you'd like to continue the discussion, join us on our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Thank you.